0: I'm here with Andy Golak, a principal at Hacks, which is the world's first and most active program investing in pre-seed hardware startups in climate and also industrial automation and human health. I'm gonna let Andy share more about his role, but my understanding is that he's engaged in the process of finding and onboarding startups to the Hacks portfolio and in providing hands-on support to those companies post-investment, helping them de-risk their technology, develop scalable go-to-market strategies and secure additional funding. Prior to Hacks, Andy did a BS in chemical engineering and an MBA. He's worked in renewable fuels and oil and gas, including as an engineer in nine different countries. He's been involved in a lot of capex-heavy projects, including the deployment of a first-of-its-kind low-carbon fuels facility while at Lanzotech. I first saw Andy on a panel at SF Climate Week then and every time I've talked with him since I've been really impressed with his very practical perspective on the role hardware innovation can play in fighting climate change and with the work he's doing to make it happen. So Andy, thanks a lot for joining. It's an honor to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks Don and and thanks for that warm intro.
0: So that thing I said in your bio really stood out to me. You've worked as an engineer in 9 different countries. So first pop quiz, can you name all of them? And uh And
1: what's the story? So when I finished up my chemical engineering degree, I joined an oil and gas company based in Chicago. And uh, as part of that role, I traveled permanently uh, for five years of my life building new oil and gas refineries. So started my career in China, uh, lived in Saudi Arabia, went to South Korea, We're really testing me here. Yeah, Uh, that's great. Yeah. Four, Singapore, but Singapore happened before South Korea, so I'm getting them out of order already. Uh, spent some time in India, the UAE, uh, then time in Colombia and South America. That was all while I was working at the oil and gas company. And then when I joined Lanza Tech in 2015, I also spent time in Japan and then the United States. Um, so mm-hmm.
0: there's. There. Mm. I'm curious, like when you when you reflect back on that part of your career, are there any, any things that stand out to you about kind of lessons learned from, from such a, a broad kind of global experience? Yeah, d- yeah, definitely. I think the beyond like the
1: technical learnings from you know being involved in that many projects that are being built and deployed, I think there's just so much perspective you gain on traveling the world, um, particularly in your 20s. This was all throughout my 20s. Um, you know, I grew up in very rural Michigan. Um, and when I, and I did my undergraduate degree in rural Michigan as well. So I hadn't spent a whole lot of time outside of the confines of basically the forest and, and some mines and other things that were up there. And <laughs> going and joining a company where you travel all around the world and live in China and Saudi Arabia, that just adds a completely different perspective that I didn't have um, prior to going on all of those experiences.
0: So it sound, you started in in oil and gas. Was kind of climate change on, on your mind at that time? Or at what, at what point did that start to be part yeah. of your thinking process? So I started in oil and gas in 2011. And so that was, you know,
1: obviously at that point, you know, everybody was aware of the challenges of climate change. Mm-hmm. I was going in and, and doing it as well. I think very naively, I thought, you know, Part of the way to make an impact there is to go work for the company and try and change it uh, internally. I mm. don't believe that any longer. But um, <laughs> twenty-two years old, and uh, you know, you 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 think uh, you know you have the ability to impact things you don't have the ability to impact. I think that's what I thought at that time. But I, I would also say, like that experience working in oil and gas has been what's allowed me to transition to my job at LanzaTech. And now my role investing in companies, many of which are looking to sell to
0: oil and gas customers um, and people in in those industries. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I hear all the time people saying the oil and gas industry has so much expertise and infrastructure and 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 talent that is going to be really valuable in the energy transition and in putting CO two back underground and and, and all this kind of stuff so i feel like that's probably a really valuable kind of knowledge to have and definitely
1: the oil and gas industry has been doing the type of engineering work that these renew that these new climate companies have been doing for hundreds of years or about 150 years roughly mm-hmm. so a lot of what we're doing in climate tech is Adapting some of those same skills, some of those same fundamental first principles learned in the oil and gas industry, and applying them to new technologies that are cleaner, cheaper, and more efficient. How did you decide to make this switch to the investing side? Really by accident. It was sort of unintentional. After I left Lonza Tech in 2019, took some time off and, and was working at a nine to five, dealing with some personal life things that. You need to deal with after you've just spent the last 10 years of your life traveling and, and building projects. Um, and then COVID hit while I was working at that, that job. Um, and I decided, all right, no idea how long this is going to be. Um, so let's you know, do the things that I need to do to make changes directionally where I want to go in my career. I knew I wanted to be more focused on the business side. Knew I still wanted to be in the climate space. That was something that was very clear and obvious to me. Um, and so I decided to go back to school and get an MBA. Um, so I did that, was living in Chicago at the time, moved to Pittsburgh uh, to go to Carnegie Mellon for their MBA program and spent the whole 18 months or 18 months, I guess not the whole time I was there, but 18 months trying to build a company in the climate space. So we were working on producing an alternative to styrofoam packaging. At the company, um, ultimately got to the point where we had some customers, had some opportunities for investment. And I sat down with my co founder and we spent a a weekend running numbers every way we possibly could um, to see if we could build the size of a business we wanted to out of this opportunity. And I think every time we ran the numbers, no matter how hard we tried to fudge them directionally where we wanted them to go, we just couldn't get to math that looked like a billion dollar company. Um, And I knew that I wanted to have that type of impact, um, dollars directly translated to impact, at least in my mind. Um, Especially when you're doing something that's replacing styrofoam packaging, the amount of dollars you're you're earning reflects the amount of styrofoam you're keeping out of the environment. Mm -hmm. And so we decided not to go forward with that opportunity. Um, But I had learned a lot in the process, had made a lot of connections, including with SOSD during that time, um, and I was working for SOSV part-time as a deal scout at Carnegie Mellon and also had spent some time working at the US Department of Energy. And when I was getting ready to graduate, I sent the, uh, the partner I started working for at SOSV a note and said, Hey, do you have anybody in your portfolio who's looking for an early stage business hire or a CEO for one of your companies or something along those lines, or even a CTO who's not quite sure what they want to do yet? You know, I'd love to come in join that company and, and be a founder. Um, and they replied back, basically, Hey, why don't you come join us instead? Um, and that's, that's how I ended up here at SOSB and, and Hacks.
0: Nice. So you, you have the kind of personal experience. You've, you've been in the position that a lot of the portfolio companies are who you're working with are in. Like, I'm sure that's valuable. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I saw the beginning
1: formulation stage of it, of like trying to get to first investment. And then mm-hmm. I had worked at companies that you know were Fortune 500 companies, and then a, a scaling startup that had raised its Series B round and and has now gone public. Um, so I had seen every part of the journey except for the one that our founders are like immediately on right now.
0: Nice. So I normally ask when I have founders of climate tech startups on the show, I ask what problem they're solving. But I think that question is still valid here. What? Why does Hacks exist? What problem is it, does it exist to solve?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the problem that we exist to solve or the thing that we often say is hardware is hard, which I think is true, um, a bit cliche maybe to say. Mm-hmm. But um, Hacks really has its roots. Uh, about 10 years ago, starting an accelerator program in China. So it's moved around a couple different cities in, in China where the headquarters was up until about 2020. Um, But we continue to operate a facility in China. But um, getting back to the point, what we we learned operating an accelerator and facilities in in China and then specifically in Shenzhen is that access to hardware and ability to rapidly prototype and iterate is incredibly important in an early-stage hardware company's prototyping capabilities and development cycle. And so from 2012 to about 2020, Hacks operated out of Shenzhen, China, investing in teams largely from everywhere but China, and they would bring them out to Shenzhen for a period of three months, have them prototype, iterate, and develop hardware right in Shenzhen. For people not familiar with Shenzhen, Shenzhen is basically the the factory of the world, and Mm -hmm. I don't think it's an overstatement to make that claim. Um, There's every sort of electronics component you could possibly need, and you can buy it from these little mom-and-pop stores. You can get custom parts fabricated in, in a matter of hours, mm-hmm. get them delivered to where you're building your hardware. Um, just this really amazing place to go fast. The, 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 the thing we would say is a month in Shenzhen is like a year in the United States in terms mm-hmm. of your product hardware capabilities. So we really developed that muscle and that, that network over about an eight-year period in Shenzhen. And then in 2020 or 2019, even before the COVID pandemic started and started making access to China more difficult, um, the team at Hacks started doing a a global search for a US or a North American headquarters. Um, Eventually landed on Newark, New Jersey, which is where we are today, um, where we have a 35,000 square foot facility that we're in the process of building out. It'll be fully operational in January. Um, So that facility has machine shop inside of it, wet labs for chemistry, 3D printing capabilities and and an electronic shop all inside of it. We still have our facilities in Shenzhen and we have an additional office we've opened in Pune, India. Those facilities in Shenzhen and Pune have a lot of our engineers working on them, staff working on them, and we're able to use those facilities for back office engineering, procurement activities, really to be a partner with our portfolio and helping them develop and accelerate their accelerate their hardware development.
0: Hmm. So as a hacks portfolio company you have access to all of this kind of equipment facilities expertise to rapidly iterate prototype physical technology.
1: Yep, yep, exactly. So we we say, you know, it's it's sort of lifetime membership to to hacks when we, when we make an investment. So Oh nice. We've got a we've got a team of um, a, a global team of about thirty at Hacks. So when we make an investment, that team of thirty really becomes an extension of the typically two or three person team that we've just invested it in. So it's a really great way to accelerate an early stage company and get them up and
0: running in a lab and in a workshop on day one. You mentioned the three areas: uh, industrial automation, human health, and climate. Why hardware? I mean, I, there are a lot of successful investors that don't touch hardware that focus on innovations and solutions in those places? Why is hardware important? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that the answer is we need hardware to solve problems in the world. Um, You know, we have to have new hardware solutions that interact with the world if we're going to decarbonize steel manufacturing. Um, We need hardware if we're going to think about new um, discovery platforms for proteins in, in healthcare space, um, we, need, we need hardware. If we're going to onshore manufacturing to the US, the, the fact is, you know, labor is not in our advantage in the United States because it is significantly more expensive than in some of the other places in Southeast Asia. So we need automation to, to address that problem and make it a reality to be able to manufacture things here in the United States. And that, that applies beyond just the United States, the industrial independence theme that, that we invest in. We really don't think about it from a US perspective and more of a, like a geography perspective, whatever your particular geography or region is, but the ability to manufacture things close to the point of the consumption and close to and keep supply chains short and small. Mm-hmm. Um, also be more robust.
0: Do you ever feel like that rule is limiting? You 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 have to invest in hardware-based companies, but there's something out there that could really make an impact on one of the problems you're looking at that isn't hardware-based? It probably is, but that's okay.
1: What we're good at and reason teams come to work with us is because we understand hardware and we can add value there. We can't add value to a software company. And I think for us to kind of move and, and start thinking about investing in that space. It's just not aligned with our core capabilities and our core function. So that's, that's why I said, you know, we're, there's rules we've broken in our investment process and we'll, we will break them, but the, the one we've never broken is we've never invested in a peer software company. Now, I say that a lot of our companies build software platforms and monetize through software. They've got a small data collection device that enables them to build a, you know, build a proprietary data set on hardware. And then they run a bunch of AI ML algorithms and are selling data and insights through a software platform. So we still monetize through software. It's just there's a hardware component to the software.
0: One of the things I've learned about kind of the typical VC model is that there's this 10-year cycle a fund is raised and then LPs expect liquidity and returns within 10 years. My experience in the hardware space, and especially this kind of deep tech space where you're doing really groundbreaking innovation, is that you can't necessarily expect that 10-year cycle to hold true when you're developing hardware. How do you get around that or how do you deal with that? Yeah. So our
1: our funds are structured a little bit different. So there's 10 years plus three one-year options on them. So they do extend a little bit longer. I think the other kind of dirty secret, maybe it's not even that dirty of a secret, is in every world in VC, funds extend beyond their 10-year life just Mm. because that's how long it takes to wind down the investments. Um, But to... Answer your question. I think there are a lot of near-term opportunities in hardware, we, where we can start to generate revenue like quite quickly. Um, so we have a company in our portfolio called R Zero. Um, it's a company that was founded in like March of 2020, thinking about how we use UV light to disinfect spaces that we occupy. Obviously, very relevant during the the COVID pandemic. That company scaled and, and took in about 120 million dollars in venture funding. Um, over a three-year period. It was less than a three-year period, actually. So the idea that hardware companies can't scale when they're solving a problem is just one I I, I don't agree with. Um, That was an example of a hardware company that found a perfect timing, perfect product market fit, and was able to scale very rapidly and is now generating significant revenues. And, And hardware companies, on top of that, I think are very attractive... Um, M&A targets for large corporates um, that maybe don't do the type of innovation that we're seeing from these early stage startups. So I, I think there are opportunities there. Um, but having said all that, I mean, we do have to acknowledge there are things that take longer timescales, nuclear fusion, DAC, etc. I mm-hmm. um, said two examples of things we've never invested in at Hacks.
0: Mm, got it. So out, outside of Kind of providing the facilities and equipment for rapid prototyping and iteration. What are the other ways hacks adds value to a to a hardware startup? Yeah, so we've got the
1: facilities. We've got our team of 30 people. Twenty-five of them are sort of engineering staff who work directly with our our portfolio, sort of their core function. And then on our investment team, the investment team works with our portfolio on technology strategy, business strategy, business development strategy, fundraising, et cetera. Um, you know, our entire investment team has experience. Well, they have technical training with advanced degrees in engineering science. And then they took those degrees and went out into the world, building and scaling early stage companies for a period of years before coming over to the investment space. So our entire investment team has practical experience In these types of companies that we're investing in. So, very relevant background and experience adding value that way. In addition to, of course, um, our staff and then the broader community that we've built. At this point, we've invested in over 300 companies, some of them very, very successful, unicorns, multi times over. And so, they have the ability to work and learn from the other founders
0: in the Hacks ecosystem as well. Mm, Cool. Aside from that challenge of, kind of how do you quickly prototype and iterate hardware in that early stage? Are there other common headwinds or roadblocks that hardware companies face that that other companies aren't? I'm, I'm thinking about, or like project financing for yeah. big, big factory style solutions, or I, I don't know, like, what, what else comes up commonly? Yeah, I mean, I think the one that is talked and talked
1: and talked about is the one you brought up, right? How do we finance? first mm. kind of um, and, and nobody's solved that problem yet. I would love to talk to anybody who's working on trying to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: major one. Can you d- articulate that a little bit more? What, what is that problem? And, and wh- why is it so unique? Yeah,
1: yeah. So as I think it's particularly relevant in some of our some companies that look much more like infrastructure projects. So imagine direct air capture, for example. You have mm-hmm. to build a big $100 million facility, and that's sort of like the only meaningful scale at which you, know, you can turn a profit on your unit economics, for example. So that's the example mm-hmm. we're going to... The technology is unproven. Um, nobody's done it at the scale you've do- that, that it's been done at. The team is likely unproven because in the, sen- in the mind of an investment banker now, Um, meaning they've never operated a facility like this, they've never built a facility like this. So there's quite a bit of risk, and it's the type of risk that a bank isn't willing to take take to write a loan to this company in order to build that facility. So what that necessarily means is these companies, in order to build their $100 million facilities, they need to go out and raise equity from a growth stage investor or like a pre-IPO equity investor Who's going to take a huge chunk of the parent company in order to build this first of a kind unit? Mm. And, and, you know, project finance is something we've solved for wind and solar. We've done it millions of times. So banks understand how to underwrite loans for them. Banks don't understand how to underwrite loans for a DAC facility. Take the DAC example, apply it to mining, apply it to new fuels production, whatever it might be. So that's that's sort of what we're talking about when we're mm-hmm. talking about this kind of financing challenge.
0: Got it, makes sense. So you're as a as somebody running one of those companies, you're kind of your traditional financing path isn't isn't open to you because you're doing something new and risky in the eyes of banks. And your other option of is is giving up a ton of your company um, to to get the equity you need to get off the ground. And there
1: and and there's a very small subset of investors who have. The technical depth to understand that type of growth stage investment, as well as the bank account to actually write the check. Got it. Okay, so
0: I kind of sidetracked us on that, but what? Any
1: anything else you'd call out? One of the biggest challenges our portfolio faces is hiring and talent. Mm. You know, it, our companies need engineers from day one. Um, so finding a mid to late stage engineer who's willing to come work at a startup um, who has a engineering degree and and we're talking mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, chemical engineers, mechatronics engineers, right? Mm -hmm. Not an engineering background. Um, Finding somebody who's got the sufficient level of experience and willing to come take the risk and uncertainty associated with working at a startup is a real challenge for a lot of our portfolio. And I think it will continue to be a challenge um, as these types of companies are built. What excites me though is more and more seeing students coming out of universities who are really excited to go work from day one in these types of companies. They're really mission driven, mission aligned, and they're willing to take that that sort of risk. And they're at a point in their lives where it's more appropriate for them to take that risk. Mm-hmm. We, still, we still need senior leadership in these companies and more experienced people who have been there and done that. And But, um, you know, I, I'm really encouraged by the amount of
0: talent coming into the these companies at an early stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that too. When you're looking at investments, these three areas you've talked about, especially like climate and healthcare, yeah. They, they seem very mission-oriented. It's about having a positive impact on yeah. on climate change or or, furthering human health. Is there ever a tension in kind of, you know, the measure of making money and the measure of having a positive impact? And do you measure both or do you just look at financial success when you consider investments? Yeah,
1: we we make investments to make money um, and our LPs expect us to make money. We invest in areas that are, uh, aligned, such that when we make money, they make significant positive impact in the world. So we are not specifically an impact driven fund at SOSV, although uh, the areas we invest in map to many of the UN sustainable development goals. And I, I think there is room to do both good and make money, um, which mm-hmm. is what what we aim to
0: do at SOSV. Yeah, that's awesome. So. As an investor, you have this kind of much broader perspective than most of the founders that I have on the show that are focused on solving a specific problem. I'm curious, in the context of climate change, which I know is only part of, part of what the fund looks at, um, are there certain problems you think deserve more attention than they're getting today? Great question.
1: Um, so, And to maybe clarify for our audience or help our audience out here, about 80% of the capital we're investing at HACS does go into climate um, at oh, this okay. point. The broader SOSV, it might be a little bit more, a uh, little bit less than that, but about 80% at, at HACS is going into the climate and industrial sector. Um, so it is a very large portion of our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the question was, what areas need more attention? So there's one that you're going to hear a lot of investors in the climate space talking about. And I think there's a lot of interest in it from investors. What we're seeing is, a, at least from my perspective, is a lack of, of talent going into this space. And it's everything related to critical minerals. Um, critical minerals are things like copper, nickel, cobalt, anything involved in the storage or transmission of electricity. And it takes a ton of metals to, to make that happen. So, we've been investing in that space for quite a while. Um, Probably our first investments in mining and critical minerals date back to about 2018, 2019 timeframe. Um, And we're continuing to make investments. We've made investments this year in 2023. We have... I've said this, we have close to an infinite appetite for these investments um, and these types of opportunities the challenge that at least i see is just not enough early stage entrepreneurs wanting to work in the mining industry or work mm-hmm. in the mineral processing industry so haven't seen a lot of early stage companies in this space to be up to be honest would love to see more
0: and where in that whole kind of chain of operations in the mining in in extracting and refining these minerals where where is that innovation needed most do you think are we talking about technologies to actually like dig in the earth and you know that side of it or where, where is it
1: yeah i i think it's i think it's everything i think it's mm. everything from exploration um uh, there's some data out there to suggest that we haven't even found all of the minerals we're going to need mm. in order to make the energy transition happen so we've got to find more minerals um we've got to find better ways to extract these minerals so moving away from open pit mining and finding more targeted solutions to to get these minerals then we have to figure out new ways to process these minerals that are less environmentally harmful and damaging as well. So I think it's really important to think through the entire value chain on that, on that sector. Um, the reality is minerals are distributed throughout the earth. So there's, it only makes sense to extract nickel in certain places and cobalt in certain places. But the, the processing capacity you know, the reason it's become concentrated in China is entirely both a labor and environmental consideration component of it. And so that's something that we can think about how we redistribute that, that refining and processing capacity of these minerals.
0: Yeah. No, I, I remember that kind of realization moment for myself that mining in, is just this kind of really dirty process in my head and, and this and a bad thing, but actually we're going to have to do a lot of it to support all the battery production, we need to do. And, and yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that 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 needs a lot of attention. Are there any other problem areas that you'd call out that is needing more attention?
1: Yes. So this is one that I've, I've been um, saying, often as well, we need more renewable capacity, we need more power generation capacity, just in general, the amount of power we need to produce. Is set to triple by 2050. Um, that's an incredible number. Um, that's largely going to be accomplished through the deployment of renewables. At this point, it is the cheapest form of energy production. We don't have the labor to make that happen. There's not enough trained labor to deploy the amount of windmills and solar panels that we need to tri- deploy. Yeah. So I'm really interested in anybody thinking about how we use automation, industrial automation to deploy renewables that can be anywhere, again, in the value chain for renewables from the factory that produces windmills and solar panels to the act of actually installing these windmills and solar panels in the field to the continuing operations and maintenance activities associated with them all the way through the end of life. Um, so would love to see more activity in this space specifically.
0: Hmm. Any, any thoughts on why we haven't seen that? I mean, that's those... Wind and solar have exploded massively, right? It seems like it's getting a ton of attention generally. Why yep. not automation for those?
1: There there are a few companies working on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the,
1: I think anytime we talk about automation, particularly in those industries, it, it, it does become a bit of a conversation and a, a, a hot button issue, where we're talking about retraining coal workers to be solar panel installers, and I'm saying, let's just use robots. <laughs> um, I, I think there's room to employ everybody as well as use robots um, in, mm-hmm. in, in these scenarios. You know, what, what, a, what a robot or an, an industrial automation uh, process does for this type of work is it turns it into something that's backbreaking and really difficult to do on a day-to-day basis for an employee to something that becomes more of a professional long-term career where you have to be a technician able to repair the robot, understand how the robot works. And, and, and you know, it ends up being a higher
0: paid uh, profession as well and something that's more, more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Curious, to solve that same challenge of scaling renewables, what do you think about something like some of these new technologies to find more geothermal energy or, I mean, you mentioned fusion which is probably yeah. a, b- a bit out on the calendar. But uh, what about those, those solutions? Yeah, I need, need them all. We need you know that firm baseload power that geothermal provides,
1: that fusion would provide. You know, we're not getting that same baseload power from renewables, so we, we need those types of solutions. Um, and I, I think, rightfully so, the oil and gas industry has a, had a particular interest in thinking about how they can apply their expertise in drilling and extraction of oil to the geothermal industry. So really exciting area. We don't actually have any investments in that space. Um, we've looked at several. Uh, there are a lot of players with a significant amount of funding in that area. So in order for us to get involved with sort of the pre-seed stage that we invest at, we'd have to find something that we think is just like truly, you know, a game changer in terms of its capabilities and what it'll do for those industries. Mm-hmm. When we think about fusion and things like geothermal, geothermal, we're often looking at ways that we can invest in supporting technologies for those, those industries. So technologies that might start to generate revenue sooner, but aren't necessarily directly a fusion confinement company. So I can give an example of that, where we just finished an investment in a company that has developed a new high-temperature metallurgy. Um, lots of different applications for that metallurgy, but one of them is in confinement for fusion. So that's an mm-hmm. example of a way we think about how do we get involved in fusion, new metallurgies, new ways to produce the fuel um, for fusion, et
0: cetera. Mm-hmm. Cool. The other one on my mind is this debate about carbon removal versus you know, mitigating emissions or point source, yeah. you know, atmospheres, atmospheric carbon removal versus other options, mitigating at the point source or, or replacing with renewables and that kind of thing. What Where do you land on that debate? Should we be removing, should we be investing a bunch of money and time into what? removing carbon from the atmosphere? It's,
1: a, it, it's an interesting question to ask us right now. We were just having a pretty heated conversation at our investment committee this morning around DAC and a DAC company we were looking at. Nice. Uh, to, I think I am simultaneously a DAC bull and a DAC bear. Um, (laughs) I I, I think we need it. Um, I think it's something that is necessary to stop global warming and, and temperature rise. Our question and the reason we haven't made an investment yet is always, when is that time? When is this technology going to be at the point when it can actually scale? You know, I think... We have to be realistic that if we make an investment in a pre seed stage DAC company today, best case scenario, maybe we're talking about something that looks like a pre commercial unit seven years from now. Seven years from now, 2030, are we actually mass deploying DAC? I think we have serious doubts and mm-hmm. questions uh, if that's actually going to be the case come 2030. That said, it's definitely necessary. Um, we have made a few investments in point source carbon capture um, in carbon capture utilization. I worked at a carbon capture utilization company that, that went public. So like, obviously, I, I have interest in the space. Mm-hmm. We, we've been very cautious and in that area, really making sure the investments we're making, we think, actually have the ability to do something meaningful and produce an economic benefit. And I think that's, you know, candidly, some of our questions with DAC at the moment is, "What is the economic benefit of DAC today?" Mm-hmm. And 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 there is there is a you know the 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 to that is there is carbon engineering which just was acquired by Occidental Petroleum. Yep, yeah. and and so you are asking yourself, "What's the economic benefit of, of that company?" Well, they got acquired by Occidental Petroleum to get more oil and gas out of the ground.
0: That is how carbon okay. engineering. Is making money. Yeah, I like that answer. I think it, it. I think humans want to have a clear yes or no to things like this, and and it's it's not that simple right now. I think, kind of to your point, like atmospheric CDR. There are such a diverse range of ways you can do it. It's not even just DAC. There's all the open yeah. system, you know, ocean alkalinity enhancement, and you know all that. So many different ways you can do it. We have a few investments
1: in nature-based solutions. Um, mm-hmm. So board observer and an investment in a company we've we've made is called Gaia AI, that is automating the way we collect data on forests. So the way mm-hmm. foresters do forestry today, they walk out in the field, use a tape measure to measure the size of the tree, use like a, a little prism technique to measure the height of the tree. And they do that you know, 50, 100 times, whatever it is, collect a statistically relevant sample of the, the trees in the forest, and then go back and do some more statistics to generate a total estimate of like the mass of trees, species of trees, etc. Mm-hmm. All in spreadsheets today. We invested in a company that automates that whole process, collects high fidelity data for, through a backpack of sensors that they uh, wear uh, in the field. And it's able to create a digital twin of the forest. And so you can come back year over year over year, collect that same high fidelity data and really do high fidelity growth modeling on the forest, prove you've actually sequestered the carbon you're sequestering or where they're actually starting today, optimize timber harvests, right? Make sure this is the exact tree you want to cut, when, timing,
0: etc. Mm, that's cool. Yeah, the whole, whole kind of like measurement side of, of CDR is really interesting, I think. Um, that's cool. Gaia, I'm going to check it out. Are there other, uh, just generally not even in CDR, are there other companies that you're excited about right now? Lots. So, and, 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 an area
1: that <laughs> we've been excited about and, and investing in is in the hydrogen space. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was, I'm actually quite surprised that we, we've made a few investments in the hydrogen space. I think it's one of the, the more hyped areas and so it's been really challenging for us to think through the hydrogen production um, side you know what what color hydrogen are we wanting to invest in you know whether it's green turquoise etc so actually as of we've made a few investments in that space dating back to like 2019 2020 we haven't made anything recently but we've made several investments in 2023 in companies thinking about how we move and trans, store and transport hydrogen we've been mm-hmm. calling it hi- Hydrogen midstream uh, is what we've been calling it. Um, So there's a company in our portfolio that I work closely with called Ayrton Energy that has developed a new way to store hydrogen in a liquid. Um, It's called a liquid organic hydrogen carrier. They basically chemically bond the hydrogen to the liquid, move that liquid, which is then safe and easier to handle than hydrogen to its end point of use, and then decouple those bonds and release the hydrogen from the carrier. And then... you can reuse the carrier in sort of a, a circular fashion. Really
0: interesting technology. Just because we have a number of hardware nerds who listen to this show, are th- what are some of the most kind of crazy or ambitious hardware challenges yeah. you've seen companies tackle?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we have one, and, and it's one of our hydrogen midstream companies. Um, so this is a, a different, uh, we've we made two investments in hydrogen midstream. So the, the other one we've made an investment in is called Arculus Solutions. And they're developing a, a robot that goes inside of pipelines to clean the pipeline and then apply a coating that makes it hydrogen ready. Um, <laughs> and the technical complexity of this robot is just massive. <laughs> um, it's got to do all kinds of things to make it a reality where, where um, you can apply the coating inside, inside, the, inside that pipeline. It, maybe I need to back up and, and say, today, hydrogen pipeline, or, or today, natural gas pipelines are made from mild steel, traditional carbon steel. That type of steel can't handle hydrogen. It'll actually cause a failure um, if hydrogen enters those pipelines. So this company is retrofitting those pipelines. We have over 300,000 miles of these pipelines in the United States. It's retrofitting them to be hydrogen ready so we can move hydrogen by a pipeline Mm. in our
0: our existing infrastructure. Okay, so I asked these last three questions to every guest. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about the future of the planet and why? Optimistic, but skeptical with that optimism. I think
1: as an investor, You have to be optimistic in order to get up and do this job every day. But you also have to be skeptical of everything you see and really question and make sure you understand all of these solutions that are being proposed, how they might scale, how they might go there. But definitely optimistic. I've seen so many brilliant founders trying to tackle so many different problems.
0: All right. Who is one other company or individual doing something to address climate change that's inspiring you? I think some groups
1: or a group specifically that I think is doing awesome work in this sector is is a group called Activate. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. them, but they're Mm -hmm. an organization turning early stage PhD, uh, typically PhDs um, into entrepreneurs. And I think PhDs are what we need to solve our climate crisis. So need more PhD entrepreneurs, Activate's doing a great job of turning PhDs into entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, I love what Activate's doing. What advice do you have for someone who's not working in climate today, but wants to do something to help? Yeah, I mean, just go do it. I I think.
1: (laughs) mm, Do what? Yeah, yeah, so (laughs) find the area that you're really passionate about, whatever that might be, whether it's forests, oceans, um, how we improve grid connection, uh, how we deploy more storage for the grid, it doesn't matter, and just go out there, talk to founders building in this space, um, and see how you can get involved. I guarantee you, a good founder that you want to work for is going to see somebody with energy, passion. And if you're doing things and providing value for them along the way, they'll figure out a way to use you inside of their company or or, or help
0: you find an opportunity elsewhere. All right. I love it. Andy, that was awesome. Um, I love... Every time I get a chance to chat with you, and, and I, I, I love knowing that you're out there doing so much to support the, the hard tech community and all these innovations getting to real world impact. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dylan. It was, it's great to be on the podcast. Um, and, if, and if people do want to reach out and get in contact with me, whether you're a startup, um, or, you know, another investor, or just somebody who wants to chat, feel free to send me a message on, on LinkedIn and, and tell, tell me where you heard me and, and I'll, I'll respond back. Awesome. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, thank you.
0: Hardware to Save a Planet is brought to you by Synapse. To find out more about us and how we develop hardware solutions for the world's most ambitious companies, head to synapse.com. And then make sure to search for Hardware to Save a Planet in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere you like to listen. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Synapse, thanks for listening.